For May 23rd, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 151, Closing Be Always. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the left coast, the cultural capital of the United States. Isn't that a sorry state of affairs? I'm your host, Matthew Rather, here with a, uh, here with a skeleton panel, but a special guest who makes up for uh, all of this uh, for the skeleton crew on the podcast to overthink. Uh, well, what's on the docket for tonight? Bridesmaids, I think. Tina Fey's book. Um, all, uh, so, uh, women in comedy. <laughs> A bunch of dudes overthinking women in comedy. Or is it? We'll see. Uh, we'll see. So, uh, question tonight. None of us saw the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Uh, so what would it have taken for you to see the Pirates of the Caribbean? And what would it take? <laughs> special bonus question. <laughs> what would it take for you to pronounce it Pirates of the Caribbean? Um, <laughs> not, not that that's, uh, that would be pretty funny, actually. That would be a great well, actually, to do outside the thing. Though I understand from people, uh, from some people I met who are from the Caribbean, I mean, who were born there and so have the kind of legit identity politics claim claim to, uh, you know, the correct pronunciation of things that they actually say Caribbean or that many of them do so that it is not more correct to say Caribbean. But it is one of those hyper corrections um, that uh, what that that liberal guilt makes us so fond of. Peter Fenzel. Hey, <laughs> what would it have taken <laughs> to get you into the cool, dark theater uh, to see Pirates of the Caribbean? Well, you know what? Probably I'd have to still be in the Caribbean, where I was most of this week, and they would have had, been playing it in the Caribbean. Because I was in, I was in Puerto Rico. That's where I podcasted from last Sunday. And on Tuesday or so, I realized that Tuesday in, in San Juan is like Tuesday in other places, i.e. like not crazy party time, but like people go to work and then they go home. And I was looking for something to do. Uh, and so I tried to see a movie, but all the movies were so far afield that like my sort of very, very low level of confidence in my ability to navigate this city in, in you know, this Spanish-speaking city. Um, and the only few movies that were showing that were in English were Thor and Fast Five. So I didn't think that – I didn't see Pirates, although I think it came out the day I left. But, um, but yeah, I didn't see Pirates anywhere. Um, not real ones, not fictional ones. But I will say this. If the movie were playing poolside and I could have had a mojito while I was watching it, I probably would have gone to go see Pirates of the Ca- Caribbean. Pirates of the Caribbean. Is that a uh, – that's, that's how I'm, I'm pronouncing it no, now? Or it's, art, or it's art house counterpart, Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay. <laughs> All right, cool. And I guess well, what would it take for me to pronounce it anyway that people want me to pronounce it? Just, uh, just the, the, the glare, like the gaze, like the gaze of condemnation. <laughs> The, the male gaze, the female gaze, that sort of sense that authority gets from looking at you, that look of like, don't, aren't you proud of yourself? Like, come on. Uh, just wordless. As long as, as soon as you give voice to the need for it, I feel like the authority of it is diminished. But as long as it's, it's issued forth just with the eyes, because the eyes are the window to the ego and to rage and to uh, moral condemnation. So there you go. That's, that's my answer to that question as Thank well. Thank you. Thank you, Peter Fenzel. <laughs> Mark Lee, what would it have taken to get you into the theater? It would have taken a time machine. And not just a time machine. <laughs> Great, Scott! <laughs> Don't, sorry. Say like a pirate. 
Great Scott, yar. <laughs> Great Scott. Great Scott. That's a future sequel instead of a Pirates of the Caribbean sequel. That would have gotten me into the movie theater. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. Sure. So what they got time machine? What's, what's, what's a Pirates' favorite Michael J. Fox movie about time travel? <laughs> what? Back to the Future. <laughs> 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 King Wolf R. What? I thought you were going to say Time Cop. Time what? <laughs> time Cop, surprisingly. Yeah. Okay. Or, so what's or, the time um, machine? Not, not 80s movie, but maybe Primer. <laughs> Primer. Primer. Oh, sorry. Primer, Primer is what goes on the walls. for mentioning time travel and then derailing my own answer to the question. I you need to go back in time and fix it by preventing yourself from having ever mentioned Seriously. time travel. No, I need to go back in time, prevent myself from having seen Pirates of the Caribbean 2. <laughs> and also any sort of press and mention of, of two or three, because having seen, I love the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie and saw the second one and hated it. I was sort of like felt myself cheated and violated from an inferior cinema experience. Like I was like exploited, right? And it's like, you like the first one. Let's just see this crazy one where we threw a bunch of crap onto the screen and made uh, a wheel spin in the, in the jungle, which is ridiculous. I felt prey to this and uh, I'm so burned by that experience that I just forsworn the Pirates of the Caribbean uh, franchise since then. And so if I were to go back to it at, at this point, it had to be uh, because I have not had that experience of being burned like that. And the only way to accomplish that is through time travel. So, yeah, uh, good luck with that, Disney. Hey, I have a really funny idea. After this podcast is over, you should go back in time and uh, and introduce – uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger to some random housekeeper and have oh, a No, you can't. What? Don't go there. Gosh. Why? Why, why would I really, go there? What do you mean? It's this has been a really idea. hard week for me. Like, uh, well, I mean, uh, okay, on, fine. I guess fine. I'll just go do that later. I'll do that later and we'll see what happens. Look, I, like, you know, you guys know me. I'm like the biggest Arnold Schwarzenegger fan uh, uh-huh. among the people that you know that do this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> great many people. But what? It's this very <laughs> discouraging thing. I don't want to think about you know, like my childhood hero. Wait, you mean it happened? You mean it worked? (laughs) (laughs) What's a a pirate's favorite branch of the Kennedy family? What? (laughs) What, Matt? What is it? The Strivers. I hate you guys. I'm sorry. Um, the, the, all right, my turn, uh, Matthew Rather. A special guest or then you, or how's it No, the special guest always goes last. Last. Oh, after, after Rather. Rather, <laughs> with a W. Right, right, right. Uh, what's a pirate's favorite overthinker? Rather. Um, the, oh no, uh, Perich, uh, funnily enough. The, uh, the thing that would have taken me to get into the, uh, the theater to see Pirates of the Caribbean is the actual rapture. Had it actually come uh, this weekend. And here's why. Um, I think you can agree that we can sort of, if you're the sort of person who likes to divide things into two, two groups, we can divide uh, life's pleasures into two groups. And that are the, the, uh, those are the, the pleasures that are immediately enjoyed but, but paid for later. And then the, uh, the more difficult uh, pleasures that are paid for initially um, – and uh, and enjoyed later the more difficult pleasures the acquired tastes right uh, the difference between say I don't know a fine cigar or you know the taste of coffee um, and a, a Big Mac yeah okay I mean is that are you willing to make that leap with me 
go on. <laughs> yeah. uh, before before the actual end of the world, I do not intend to enjoy any of the difficult pleasures at all. It's going to be <laughs> Big Macs and uh, you know milkshakes and th- th- all kinds of uh, immediate gratification uh, in the twenty four hours. Preceding it, and uh, mm-hmm. I, and I have a feeling that that's what, um, if it is successful at all, that's what the uh, the pirates movie would be. I hear there's mermaids in it, so the um, g- you know, so uh, it would have taken the actual rapture. It would have taken the threat of impending death for me to want to forget life uh, to such an extent that I would have been into uh, that. I would have been into uh, going to see it. Um, it. Did you hear that, Disney? Balls in your court. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you can do it. Um, excellent. So, special guest. It, we're doing uh, lady comedians tonight, I think. Um, so, I, it would not be complete without an actual woman uh, on the podcast because those are the kind of uh, essentialist identity politics that we tacitly support. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> That's right. You're only allowed to talk about things if you are those. Things. If you are, if are you? <laughs> are you? Who right. Are that's you? why. That's why we can joke about the uh, Caribbean because Pete was there this week. Exactly. Yep. Um, so, uh, special guest Priya Ramanathan uh, joining us for the first time. Um, uh, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you for Yay. coming on the uh, the show. I assume you, too, did not see Pirates of the Caribbean or the Caribbean or any other sort of uh, uh, pirates this weekend. No, no, I, I didn't. I don't, I, you know, I'm, I think I'm glad I didn't. I don't know. It's Johnny Depp, so it's, it's a hard call for us ladies with a Z. All of you. In what way? In what way is it a hard call? <laughs> like, as in, like... I think, I, I think I'm required to just, like, be in love with this hotness, right? But there's no Orlando Bloom, so I feel a bit better about it, I think. Okay. I haven't watched a Pirates of the Caribbean movie in some time. How many of them was Orlando Bloom in? I think just the first three. No? The first right. three. Yeah, so this is the first one without, like, Keira Knightley at, at all. Thank God. Yeah. See, I have that kind of, like, lack of, I don't know, I don't feel like I should dislike Orlando Bloom, but if I ever want to dislike Orlando Bloom because he's such a pretty man, I can always remember that wonderful scene from Black Hawk Down where he's the guy that falls out of the helicopter and hurts himself. Uh, like, he's very dramatic at the beginning about how he's going to go into Mogadishu, and then he, like, falls on the rope, and then they're all trying to rescue him. People forget that when they talk about Black Hawk Down, that they're actually trying to rescue Orlando Bloom the whole time. And then also, I think Nathan Fillion was, was Private Ryan. But I'm getting a little bit too. Yeah, but, See, I'm talking but, about but don't but don't forget that he also married a Victoria's Secret model, and then they had babies. Well, one oh. baby, but I'm sure they'll have more, and then you'll be even more upset. I'm sorry, that's I'm not here to break hearts. Oh, <laughs> yeah, this is like the reality. I'm not here to make friends. <laughs> I'm not here to make friends. So, by the time we're in the blue period, what would have taken you to, to get you to see the movie? Um, I think a really amazing happy hour. <laughs> after many many drinks like would it have to be at the movie or like if you just had had a sufficiently like, awesome happy know, hour a, a couple of hours if someone was like let's go see parts of the Caribbean I'd be like yes that's a great idea <laughs> I'd wander over and I would forget that I paid $16 to go see the movie in the first place and I'm sure it would actually add entertainment value so nice, nice. So, so let's see so this happy hour that you speak of seems to have powerful cultural properties what's the most extreme movie it could get you to see like where's the line <laughs> yeah, like would called, you see a right the, uh, you could invent you could invent an, invent an index right the happy hour yeah. index of film uh where like uh, it's by number and type of drink you know whether yeah. it's whether right. it's uh wine beer or spirit mixed drink um 
uh, and, uh, you know, how good, how raucous it would have to be um, and how, like, uh, you know, how much into the uh, kind of Sufism of, you know, exaltation and uh, uh, <laughs> sort of or- orgiastic frenzy you would have to be uh, in order to <laughs> dance, in order to dance your way into the movie theater. I think, you know, I think a box of wine could probably get me to go see a Nicholas Sparks related movie. I just need to cry. I'd just be I'd just be a, a, bl- a blubbery mess or something, you know, a, a, you know, like a romantic movie of the 1800s. I am pretty sure I could say that with, with a lot of confidence. There, there, there were very few movies in the actual 1800s. That's true. I, I, I love <laughs> The Sneeze. It's a great one. No, that's, that's early 1900s. Oh, man, I think. Um, so, yeah, so, 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 like, wait, Jane Eyre. Would you have to be drunk, hammered to see Jane Eyre? No, because Michael Fassbender is extremely good looking, and I did go see it, and I didn't mm. need to be drunk. Drunk drunk on hot? I don't know. <laughs> drunk on hot. <laughs> drunk on abs. Drunk on periodic <laughs> Was there lots of abs in that movie? I don't remember there being a great many abs in Jane Eyre. Maybe there were. Maybe I just missed them. Uh, I'm trying to remember. You, you, could, you could pretend they're there if you have good enough imagination. Okay. Um, the Michael Fassbender, yeah, uh, but I, you know, I think of him in Hunger, you know, in the movie about the Irish hunger strike. And uh, I, I don't, I don't watch those movies because there aren't abs in that. He got <laughs> well. No, th- there are abs. They're just emaciated. They're like a Christian Bale <laughs> le- level of emaciated. It's. Uh, I it's, saw that one. I have a wrong decision. It's really, uh, it's really, really depressing, um, as well. Uh, all right. So you know, our friends over at the Hot Dog Network. Uh, do this. Let's all uh, let's all go go through and say what we're drinking. I have a, a fine draft from the box of wine, the rectangular prismatic box of wine uh, from the fine people at Trader Joe's. I finally found a box of wine that I that I love above all other boxes of wine. Um, you know, uh, Mark and Priya, what what you have on tap? Wait, wait for it. Wait for it. Harpoon. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Not making that one up. Uh, so you are you are uh, you are like Ahab, uh, you know, searching for the white whale of forgetfulness. I guess, but it says beige, Belgian style, beige, ale. Belgian style, Belgian style like? pale ale. And Belgium really doesn't have much to do with pirates and or the Caribbean. Maybe with palm frites, which I would I would, I would be go, I would go for right now. Right, palm little... to the Caribbean. I'd see that. That'd be pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a series of decadent French fries, and mm. um, and and Pete, you're uh, adding to the root beer pyramid, yes? Well, how did you know? <laughs> yes, I'm actually in a two of evening, and I have another one that's not yet popped, waiting for later on in the podcast when things get really crazy. Pete, you are um, <laughs> you are a, a a fit person, and and you know devoted to to personal fitness and health, and yet a devotee of the uh, of the canned soft drinks. I, uh, well, I, I drink a lot of diet soda, um, but I also will say that the times in my life when I've been my fittest have not been the times in my life where I've consumed the most diet soda. So that's a, that's a spurious correlation in a realm dominated by spurious correlation. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we shall see. I mean, yeah, I, I like a good diet soda, and I drink too much of it. But, uh, I mean, when I'm at my healthiest, I drink a lot of club soda. Like, that's my thing. That's my drink. Yeah. Um, so. So I don't know whether that's because I care more or just because the the aspartame just you know wreaks havoc on my fragile fragile primate system, and is like uh, you know you shall not you shall not pass. You all know you all know that I quit drinking sodas right on uh, January tenth, twenty oh six. Yeah, I, I commemorate for that. Here. Yeah, exactly. I actually I did, this year I celebrated uh, five years of sobriety. <laughs> <laughs> Tons. <laughs> I I did uh 
Yeah, absolutely. Because I was, uh, I was well over 200 pounds and I was a high school teacher at the time. And, uh, I, um, I quit drinking Dr. Pepper, of which I was drinking a, uh, a case a day or a case and a half a day uh, because I was a high school teacher at the time. And uh, you have to do something to forget. And the, uh, <laughs> the, um, the pounds, like I lost 15 pounds in, in uh, less than a month, 15 or 20 pounds. And I dropped what? under 200 pounds uh, in less than a month just from removing the extra 15 or 1600 calories. Uh, of, oh, so you weren't uh, drinking diet soda at all. You were drinking. I don't see the, soda. I don't see the point of diet soda. It's like, uh, it's like clove cigarettes, you know, and it's like, I don't know. It's just basically drinking carbonated acid. So, I mean, you don't like to drink acid. <laughs> Come um, on, man. I'll, no, I, I love I, the part of the overthinking podcast where we subject popular beverages to a level of scrutiny they probably don't deserve. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, it's always it's always Mark who's keeping uh, who's keeping us on track. <laughs> I'm in boss mode. What can I say? I don't mean to mention this. My friend Free here I actually was her boss at, uh, at my former place of work, which we shan't talk go into any detail about. But I hired her twice. Uh, no, that's right. Words, she owes me everything. I hate her. Still just it, working your way to college. You were young. You needed the money. I understand. Did it, <laughs> did, it not, <laughs> did it not take the first time you hired her? And so you it had was to hire for, her again? We hired her, yeah. We, we, we kicked her ass out, and then we hired her again. No, it was for an internship, and then I, and then I hired her again as full-time. Oh, I see. Um, that happened. It was a true so, thing. Uh, at, the, at, this, uh, at this place of employment, which will not be named Priya, what, what did people say about Mark behind his back? Because he was in, he was in a man- management position, I think, right? So uh, uh, what, what were the secrets? What was whispered in the break room and around the water cooler about uh, our friend, the overthinker, Mr. Lee? You know, I can't say there was anything really bad, but there was a lot of talk of karaoke, which proved to be true. And I think that's <laughs> a lot of expectations. Yeah, I didn't really hide that part of my, uh, my persona in the office. Yeah, I can, t- I can tell you that uh, Mark is a master of the karaoke. I have seen him tear into uh, Ace of Spades um, in, in a way that just, uh, I don't know, it, I saw God, I think. More, <laughs> more than, more that, that, than... That's how I feel when Mark sings uh, a little Kesha. We do, we do, have, we do have some songs. We, we do have some, some songs together. Oh, yeah? You sing Kesha together? Yes. Uh, there's a place downtown where the freaks all come around. Uh, where they go hardcore and there's glitter on the floor. I think glitter and hardcore don't belong together in a set of lyrics. They do. Even Kesha lyrics, but there they are together. It's All like right. the genie in the bottle that hypothetically you shouldn't have to rub because for the genie in the bottle, you should decant it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's actually taken from Christopher Miller, professor, English, English professor Christopher Miller, in his lecture, in his colloquium on the metaphysical poets, in which he was trying to say, sometimes mixed metaphors are okay. <laughs> so... That's no right. Yeah, that's. Uh, I I actually saw that lecture, or I saw the same analogy uh, in a different lecture. I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm the genie of the bottle. You have to decant me the right way, because right. the only genie you rub is the genie of the lamp. Is the genie of the lamp, I mean, and you don't really rub a bottle for you no. know, for anything. No, not not really. Not I mean, not unless it's like delicious king cobra or something. <laughs> like, yes, my pretty. Yes, soon after we leave this grocery store. Soon. <laughs> <laughs> Colt soon. 45 wow. works soon, every time because of be chemistry. Um, <laughs> Can't not uh, work. What's what in what's what in pop culture news? Do we have uh, do we have business to attend to? Um, 
Yeah, sure. Let's let's say we've promised a uh, listener feedback show before the end of 2011. So if you would like to uh, send us a message, uh, email podcast at overthinkingit.com or call the uh, call the voicemail, which I totally forget. Uh, 283-285-6401. 203-285-6401. And... Um, Oh, and what else? Go on to iTunes and rate us. Give us a star rating, uh, if you would be so kind. And if it were a high star rating, would it, would it really kill you? I mean, it costs you nothing to give a high star rating instead of a low one. Uh, you know, I mean, if you can live with yourself after that. Um, that's the best way to surface us in their uh, list of podcasts. And we've actually, we're now, we're now in the middle of the pack on the film and TV page pretty regularly. Uh, uh, thanks to the people who are who are rating us uh, week after week. <laughs> it's like vote, <laughs> vote for president as many times as you're allowed to. Uh, no, I think you're only allowed to do it once. But if you haven't, well, would you mind finding the iTunes page for the Overthinking It podcast and uh, clicking on a high number of stars, a number of stars that is uh, five or close to it, um, because uh, they'll probably disqualify us because I'm soliciting high ratings from the listeners. Uh, because um, that, that pushes us high in their rankings. Any other news? News? Any other? No, the Cliche Mageddon uh, 3D contest is over. The winners from that, I think, will be announced next week. Uh, hey, when's the next overview coming out, Matt? Oh, I've been waiting for it with this, bated breath. Yes, I know, uh, because uh, because you were on it, and you had yeah. a great deal of great things to say. Um, I am. Uh, I screwed up a little bit of the recording of the overview because I did not have my... Um, uh, I did not have this uh, wonderful microphone that you hear me in now on, and I was recording with my MacBook microphone. So I am going in comment by comment and re-recording what I said on the over. Oh, right. right. Um, so that uh, – and it, it's slow going, I'm afraid to say, uh, because it has to time out exactly with what the other people say and uh, with the film. So um, the uh, the next overview is Ghostbusters 2, and it features uh, our own Peter Fenzel and special guest overthinker uh, and, um, you know, Holly. Celebrity person uh, Bear McCreary, who is the composer of Battlestar Galactica, uh, Caprica, Step Up 3D. Oh, such a good movie! I mean, what? <laughs> and, yeah, definitely. Uh, and uh, and many other many other things. Eureka, Terminator, Sarah Connor Chronicles. Yes. Um, Human Target, for which uh, I, I think his work was frankly glorious and recently the walking dead uh and we're gonna get bear to on to talk about the walking dead uh when the new season uh comes out but um uh yes so and he has he has some great things to say about about the film um but in the meantime if you haven't gone to the overview uh if you haven't listened to the overview it's our series of commentaries alternative commentaries on uh some of your favorite films which are also coincidentally our favorite films and are all available on Netflix instant streaming so you can listen to them uh you can listen to them at overthinkingit.com/store we're working on the drug dealer model of commerce where the first one is free but you have to pay for the second and third hits uh <laughs> so you can download the uh our alternative commentary to Twilight uh, on uh, overthinkingit.com/store, uh, and then you can buy the commentaries to Starship Troopers and The Karate Kid um, on that same page. The greatest compliment I've heard about these is that people enjoy listening to them even without the films 
playing. Though you are meant to get your own copy of the film and play it. There are instructions for syncing it up with the uh, uh, with the film, your DVD or your you know Netflix instant copy of the film. Uh, when you when you play it, you need the facility to watch the movie and play the MP3 at the same time. Um, but uh, when you do that, uh, you will hear our uh, insights, our overthinking, uh, timed with the um, uh, timed with the film, and it is a uh, it is a glorious thing, if I do say cool. so myself. Uh, on onward, onward. Um, excellent. It is. It is. It excels. It is excellent. Uh, for it excels. I'm not sure what it excels, but it it excels it without question. Um, so, uh, tell us about Bridesmaids. W- what is Bridesmaids a movie about? Go for it, Priya. It, it isn't really about Bridesmaids. I don't, I don't know. If what? I, I, you know, that's just what I felt. I mean, there are some funny Bridesmaids in it, but it's a lot about, it's a lot about Kristen Wiig and her character and, and just being, just being a little bit sad, a little bit sad until she's not sad anymore. I, th- I think Bridesmaids is mostly about, I mean, you, for those of you know, who haven't seen it and have seen the previews and that sort of thing, I mean, you know, the, it, uh, you know, a wedding-related comedy is what you might expect out of it. But I think that most of the movie succeeds, is sur- or surrounded by and, and succeeds on the depiction of Kristen Wiig's uh, descent into uh, to a rock bottom, utter rock bottom. And uh, the progressive... Uh, the progressive way in which that is portrayed um, is done perhaps in, 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 a, in a way that I've never seen quite done quite as well in movies whilst being so freaking hilarious. Um, if you just imagine um, in various moments where she gets herself kicked off of a plane or um, and the best part in the, at the bridal shower where she uh, just basically you know, flips her lid and uh, topples over um, a gigantic cookie. A gigantic cookie. Thank you. Um, that's, that's really what the movie is mostly centered about. Mm-hmm. Um, but sort of the other thing that I hear mostly that the movie is about is this idea of, uh, well, not just well, female friendship on the surface. And then sort of at the next level of that, um, this, uh, well, people are sort of elevating it up to this pedestal of, um, this shining example of women in comedy and how they can be in comedies without being defined by their relationships towards men. That's what I'd say the movie is about. I'm tearing up a little bit. <laughs> just, just drink more. It'll go away. Uh, <laughs> no, so, so wait, so you're saying the movie is... A, now, how, how deep of a meta level is this to say that the movie is about this, right? Are you saying that there is a movie and that is what the movie accomplishes? Or is it that what is actually... I mean, I didn't see the movie. I, I want to have seen it. I hear it's hilarious. Um, but... but the, no. It is not, let's say, like, a, a meta level would be something like 30 Rock, right? Where the woman is in charge and she gets it, makes it, produces a TV show. Right. Right. Um, that is not that the same thing. The same thing does not happen in Bridesmaids. No. Okay. The, like, uh, these things happen and the movie accomplishes that. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, I would say, I would describe that as sort of even more of sort of a level of meta text, I guess. Or at least of, like, subtext, right? It's like, that's something that's happening while the movie is actually happening. So, so let me ask this. So, so Bridesmaids as a, as a symbol, right? So, if it's not about people who are maids at bride, at uh, weddings, maids at brides, mm-hmm. if it's not about people who are literally at weddings, then, of course, there's what being a bridesmaid means, 
right? Which, which in the, the, the sense, the sort of signifying sense, it refers to the, the sense that somebody else is always the person who gets to do the awesome, exciting stuff. And you feel like either left out or rejected or also kind of bypassed. There's something to be said about sort of like the anxiety of aging associated with sort of not having the life that you want. Like, is the movie about that? Is that stuff at all about being the bridesmaid and never the bride? It, or it is also, it literally, it means that you're a virgin because you'd be like a, <laughs> bride's matron or something if you were well yeah though that's true that's true and also it, it means that you're also in the dairy industry because <laughs> I, I think there's a little bit of the aging but i think a lot of it is i mean i went to go see it with my best friend and there was a lot of like that oh my best friend is leaving me she's gonna get married and yeah get, and then also that there's all the a very rich competing best friend it's a lot more about losing that portion of your life versus oh my god i don't have all these things in my life Right, right. So it's about it's about a relationship between a woman and another woman who the woman perceives has more of the good things that that woman wants for herself, and also, but also more of, or also the loss of that person because they have the good things, which is a kind of sad irony to life, right? That like when good things start happening to people that you care about, you're happy for them, but it also sometimes means a loss for you because it means they move on, right, to do other stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that's what Superbad is about to an extent. Um, and of course, the advertising informs us all. This is by the producer of Superbad. Uh, That's a really good point, and yeah. it's obvious when you put it that way. But it had not occurred to me yeah. until you just said My that. Mind I mean, this is what English majors do. We we talk about the book having not read it. So um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it seems to me like if I were to make a movie called Bridesmaids that wasn't going to be about a wedding, it would be about like that sort of aspirational sense combined with that sense of loss. That like, okay, I want to be this awesome person. Oh, but the people who become these awesome persons are lost to me, which is one of the central anxieties in, in doing anything important or major in your life is the sort of social change that comes along with it. Like, do, can, I, can I handle the new life that I, will, uh, that I will have if I accomplish the thing that I want to accomplish? And then the answer is usually let's not do that and let's just watch something on television uh, instead. But um, but that's cool, and I'm glad to see Kristen Wiig like out there in the front on the front lines. I mean, because she not only does she star in the movie, but she she's a writer in the movie too. Right now, does she have like a a writing credit for her participation, or is she? Yeah, like- yeah, I think she actually her and her her writing partner are credited for that, and actually, I think the writing partner is actually in the movie. Okay, so so definitely they're like a writing team. I don't know. Too they're, much yeah, they're they're a writing team from uh, what Wikipedia and IMDb tell me. Uh, one being better looking than the other one. No offense to the other lady. Um, she's also very funny, but not in the movie. Um, but it was it was very well done, and I, I I think what I do like is that she's not because she writes it because she's starring it. She's not super like apish. She's not just like doing it up, like doing weird characters the whole entire time. She's it's actually oh. her, which is really weird because I was I'm so used to watching her do really weird things, and only like a third of what she does is weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she's an interesting performer. I, I mean, I loved her when I was first introduced to her in the Joe Schmo show. She's one of my favorite people. Um, but I, I've often felt like her performing her very out there characters always felt a little bit uncomfortable. Um, you know, because Like her personality shines through every character that she does. I feel like I don't know. That's just my own opinion of, of her work. And it's, she's not like somebody like like an impressionist or something who's going to totally shroud herself in these identities of these other people. So she can do outrageous things, and they're funny. And she's of course representing them as an actress. But she never struck me as the most sort of like character, you know, in the sense of being a character actor. Right? Um, I don't know. Does that does that make sense to anybody, or am I just being silly? I, I guess I sort of get that. I think she is kind of creepy. Like, I think that's what's weird is that you, she's kind of, she's lost that creepy element because she's so normal. I actually mm. had a moment, I actually watched SNL this weekend where I was expecting her to be like she was in the movie, but she was playing like all of her weird, creepy, like, 
you know, I'm an old movie star, like one of those weird characters. And it was it was right, kind of, right. it was kind of like a, a weird shift for me. After watching two hours of her being like a lady. Yeah, yeah. Well, I definitely know she had that weirdness of hers. Seems very much her own when she brings that out there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so well, well, then let's let's cut to the chase. Then I mean, I don't know. I don't want to steer this too too actively. If there's more you want to say about the movie, um, but but let me let me posit this to you and spin it off in whatever direction you want. So I, uh, this week I read uh, Tina Fey's new book, uh, Bossy Pants, right? Which is her book about uh, it's about her upbringing and about her ideas of authority and about uh, specifically about women, authority, and comedy. Uh, and, and about kind of uh, – there's a lot of talk about women in the workplace. There's a lot of talk about being a manager. Um, it's, it's sort of a, a book for the sort of ascendant, um, you know, high-level high or advancing uh, female professional class, right? Um, and she talks a lot about the sort of how male comedians – Bring down women, and they do, and they and and uh, and tell and how women, people say, "Oh, women aren't funny. Women aren't funny." And yes, yeah, sometimes people actually believe this from a from a sort of craft standpoint, and, and we can get into that. Um, I don't think it's true, but we can get into the, what people are saying about it. And a lot of the time, it's kind of a power thing, right? And and uh, and there, she tells a story about Jimmy Fallon in a story meeting with uh, Amy Poehler, and Amy Poehler was doing some sort of uh, jokey thing, and, and Jimmy Fallon like turned around and says, stop doing that, that's not cute. And I think Amy Poehler says to him, like, I'm not doing it for you! You know, you know like, uh, like this, yeah, this is not about you, uh, which is sort of a very intense moment. The idea that part of, why, part of what holds women back from being funny, it, it, and this is me editorializing on it, is that if, when, when, when female comedians kind of come up short, it might sometimes be because they see themselves as performing for someone else's benefit fit rather than just for themselves, which is kind of something intrinsic to truly great comic performances, is, is being beholden to no one and being willing to take those risks. But let me put this out there. So, like, there's been a lot of talk lately about this sort of – maybe maybe you guys haven't heard it. I'm involved in, in comedy about women in comedy, women – being perceived as not being funny, but shattering those boundaries and moving forward. And Bridesmaids is kind of like an Iwo Jima flag, right, that's being raised above the cinema saying, like, this is a comedy with women in it, you know, and it is not for you. It is not about you and the men. This is, like, our thing. And it's really funny. And it's totally legit. So, like, how does this movie – does this movie really, like, leap that hurdle for you guys? Does this movie really, like, address that issue and conquer it? I mean, do you feel the anxiety of, of that question in this movie? Um, I mean, you said this is what the movie is about, but uh, I don't know whether you mean that in the sense of, like, referentially or whether this is yeah. your own context. You know, I, I think I, I was kind of grappling with this issue because the thing is, I really – I thought all the women did a really great job and I really, really like Kristen Wiig. But I'm really glad that I'm not like Kristen Wiig as a lady. I'm really glad that, like, that, that I don't act my life in this way. But I think who really, like, in, encapsulates, like, this the sentiment you're talking about, this, like, this kind of, like, flagship flab, flagship female is – is Melissa McCarthy's character is Megan. She's um, kind of scary, but also hilarious. I mean, the whole concept is that she has a great job. She's super confident and she just does whatever she wants. And I think that, and she's hilarious. I mean, if you just capture that part of it, I think that's who I think really does that. I don't think any of the other women really do it as well as she does. But not and I think really, uh, one of the things that Amanda Marcotte points out in her, a friend of overthinking it, Amanda Marcotte points out in her kind of, reaction to the movie is that she's not delusionally self-confident because like the, right. the you know the kind of the fat woman character who is and this is I'm cribbing all this from Amanda Marcotte uh, the fat woman this kind of oversexed fat woman character or you know confident fat woman character overconfident fat woman character is kind of revealed to be delusional but uh, if I'm uh, correct me if I'm mistaken but she's not delusional she's actually very successful and kind of right. has every right to be confident in right 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 yeah mm-hmm. right 
Right. There's one hilarious moment in the movie where, like, you know, just trying to, I think, a play on this, like, you know, is she this overconfident, ridiculous fat woman stereotype? She comes in with nine dogs on a leash and she says, yeah, I overestimate on that one. I probably should only take in six. <laughs> I don't know if that was directly what the, that's referring to, but it certainly sparked that. Um, it sparked that moment in my mind from the movie. Right. Um, well, that, I think that's that's like a legitimately funny, authentic moment that I feel like we can all identify with. Right. Uh, like, uh, the, like the dogs on the leash. There's a whole other backstory behind that as well, too. It's not just sometimes there's a dog just a dog. This is not one of those moments. Right. Oh, okay. Fair enough. So, fair enough. Pri, let me ask this question um, because earlier we were talking about uh, how Pri is kind of an expert in the rom com slash chick flick genre. Um, Pri, I think you've seen. All of them. That's yes. not an overstatement. I eat a lot and, of ice cream. <laughs> so Bridesmaids is often held up in contrast to all of those other, and I'm using scare quotes here. You can't see mm-hmm. them. Pre, you can see them. The rest right, of you I can't can see them. them. Um, those other movies ostensibly about slash with women. Mm-hmm. So how then, so can we just put into words and why is Bridesmaids different? Well, is Bridesmaids different from those movies? And if so, how? Uh, I think, um, I think it it's different because there's so many other side characters. There's a lot of noise, like really loud, funny noise all around. But I sort of think it isn't because it does. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ruin it this for some people, but I think the Chris um, O'Dowd character, um, who I love because he's pretty adorable, I think really kind of pushes it in that rom com, that rom com world. Also, um, Wilson Phillips doesn't help things. Um, I think I think it really. I mean, I watched it once again. I watched it with my best girlfriend. It was like ladies' night. Let's go see a movie. I think it really did kind of fall in that. But it was one of those things where a lot of the men didn't domineer what was going on. So, can you give it a good, like a specific example of where the, the man typically domineers, dominates, domineers? domineers? I made that word up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is what harpoon will do to you. Um, do I get money for that? I'm just kidding. Touching. Um, <laughs> um, so I, I guess. Uh, I guess even like John Hamm being extremely good looking only has like really bit parts in this. Chris O'Dowd is actually kind of seen as kind of wussy, which I think is really, really interesting. Like there's there, I think they could have done so much more with those characters. But they chose not to by using a lot more of the uh, the female characters to do more of that fill. So all, the Melissa McCarthy part says Megan. I think a lot of that. Uh, let's not for the, the scene in the in the wedding, the, the bridal boutique. I think also fills that where it kind of doesn't fall into that rom-com category because there's so much going on with like, I'm, you know, there's not like girls singing into hairbrushes. It's like, you know, women being disgusting. <laughs> Can we talk about that for a moment here? And I don't think this is really spoiling anything because this is very much alluded to in the trailer. Yeah. Um, and Matt and Pete stopped me but, uh, that this is getting uh, too spoilery here. But, you know, the scene that's alluded to in the trailer where they are trying on their dresses in the, uh, right. at the store mm-hmm. and they basically get food poisoning at the store. Sounds familiar? Well, they get food poisoning from trying on their dresses? I no, they, they, they go to a sketchy restaurant, and then they it hits them while, they're, while they have the fancy dresses on. Oh, okay, okay, fair enough. So this and is where it's, it's in the stuff, trailer, or? yeah. That, that, let's just say it comes, starts, they, they have a lot of gastrointestinal issues. Okay. <laughs> um, and so, uh, tell me what you think about this. Like, to me, this is part of the movie where it's part of the movie where it was most hitting it on the nose, for lack of a better word. In that, like, we are literally uh, vomiting and pooping on the traditional uh, <laughs> uh, and the way the, the role of women in those types of movies. Right, right, right. Mm. I wonder, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot because I wonder if there was a different way of doing it because this is really poop jokes are not my humor. I, they're just not my thing. So I, I was I think that there was a portion where they could have stopped. I think there's a there's a scene where they could have said that without actually without actually pooping. Without actually doing that. it. 
Yeah, that would be that'd be sort of anti-comic though, right? Because comedy is about the the rebellion of the body against. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I'm I, I'm serious, right? Like against the constraints that you would put on it, you know? Right. The uh, right, right. and I mean I, that's why I wouldn't I wouldn't ever take it away from that. I think I think we should just we we, we could have left it as as it is, but it was very much it was very much cringeworthy. I think it was, and I don't think it's because it was. I mean, I don't care who does it, man, woman, poop, not really interested. But I think it was interested the way that they did it, and I you know. I think I'm still torn with this. I think, I think I'm still thinking about whether or not I really need to see that or not. Mm-hmm. Well, it's needing and then, you know, wanting right. or deriving. <laughs> also, there, there are scenes that can be for different people, but I understand what you mean. Right. I definitely understand. Well, let me ask you this, because this occurred to me. The thing that struck me is when you're saying that this is a movie which has a very developed ensemble that surrounds the main character, right? Like it's, it's about the main character, but there's a very developed group of characters around her that are also playing with a lot of the same issues that she's playing with and are, and are exploring a lot of different directions. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that sort of correct about this movie? Yeah. Okay. So, so when I think about romantic comedies, it just sort of occurred to me now, like that doesn't really sound to me like a contemporary romantic comedy. It sounds much more like an older kind of comedy. Like if you think about the sort of old stage comedy where there's like a scene and then these people come out and they do something and like we see what they're up to and then they interact with everybody else. And there's the sense that the comedy takes place somewhere, that there's like a community of people that inhabit this place where this comedy is happening. And romantic comedies often to me seem to happen in sort of suspended places where the, the people who are falling in love and such are sort of its only real inhabitants, mm-hmm. right? Like, like romantic comedies can be very isolating. Maybe it's partially because of the anxiety of isolation that they stem from, like people being afraid of being alone and trying to resolve that anxiety, you know, performatively in sort of an anti-catharsis where you like try to make people feel maudlin about like a situation that's actually kind of bad. Um, but I mean, but that, you know what I mean? Like when you think about a movie, like say like Pretty Woman, right? Think how lonely the characters in Pretty Woman are in their lives and, and like yes they have friends like you know julia roberts has people she talks to sometimes but like but it doesn't give the sense that they're in sort of like a thriving community place mm-hmm. right um does, does that does that resonate at all i mean i'm thinking about yeah. the romantic comedies and even when you think of love actually right like love actually which is all about the sort of like love all the many faces that love has in a in a town or in a place where people live each of the instances are very isolated like they feel very isolated the people kind of like dwell on their own mm-hmm. and yes like it is remarkable that they inter intersect with the other plots in the movie it is like it is like something that makes the movie seem almost like art housey and its radicalness that like oh there might be other human beings in this world other than the people i'm falling in love with right now right right. um i I think i think you do see it sorry i I think i think you do see that just because i think the whole concept of you know her best friend's getting married isolates her and Mm -hmm. you could just see this is when you kind of see her grappling with the fact that you know she has you know, a not great love life. And then there, then that's when they throw in some of the male characters. And I think that's the, that's the section of romantic. Right. Comedy, dramedy. So the men come into the movie when Kristen Wiig is feeling alone. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's when I think that that's, that's her judgment calls. Yeah. And I think that there's a, there's a major scene where you kind of remove it where she's by herself to where she's dealing with a larger group of people. When one of the characters walks in and says, Hey, there's all these other people around you. You have all these other friends you're not by yourself dealing with how sad your life is and how you're not with a dude and all this other stuff. So I think it, that's, that's maybe where the parallel is. It's like there's, there's each little slice of those worlds. Yeah. Right. But see what you're cutting about though, about this idea of the ensemble comp and the ensemble and like yeah. they act together yeah. As opposed to sort of like autistic, I don't know if autistically is the right word, but sort of like siloed within either various little, little spheres. Yeah, I was the, autistic, <laughs> the right word. 
anyway. I don't know where that came from. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. To all of our autistic to all of our listeners with autism and Aspergers, I sincerely apologize. I'm sorry. Siloed. Autism and siloing have nothing to do with each other, really. Okay. Well, this is about we're talking about. They're hitting on the head is this idea of the ensemble cast. And and Priya, correct me if I'm wrong here, but maybe is that one of sort of the quote unquote groundbreaking things that we're talking about here? Mm-hmm. Like so rarely is a group of women brought together uh, that acts so effectively as an ensemble. That's right. not Sex in the City. Also. Right. And you know what I think? Uh, maybe I'm, I'm kind of taking this in a tangent is that you can tell so much of that ensemble work is done on improv basis because I think it really captures like a lot of. Conversa- a lot of it is very conversational, especially in the beginning when you first are introduced to all the characters. It's very much like they're just winging it. And I think that's what really gets that ensemble character of it. Mm-mm-mm. Interesting. And, and so, like, so, so thinking about that, I mean, when we're, I've been thinking about, as you've been talking about this, and thinking about women in comedy and thinking about, like, what are the obstacles to being effective? Like, just sort of, like, assuming for a moment that there is some grain of truth in the idea that, that for some reason, like, it's been hard for women to be as funny as they might want to be in movies or in plays or in stage shows. I'm assuming that they're that I'm trying to search for the, the kernel there, and I'm sort of, my, I'm coming in from a basis where my gut reaction is, like, well, there, there's something that's holding them back. If people don't think that women are funny, either they're all wrong and they're just making it up and they're bullshitting, which is probably probably true or there's something that's holding them back and, and i really think um this idea of being in the ensemble versus being solitary is is kind of important like it feels important because one of the more subtle uh sort of like uh, uh types that is very sexist in the way that it affects people is this notion of like the binary other right which is like a human being needs to have another human being in order to sort of feel complete so you should be like looking for somebody else who is different from you in a way to combine with them right and and so uh, a lot of stories are told from the perspective of the man looking for the woman and a lot of energy around this this dialogue you, you talk about how oh this person only exists to make me happy but but another thing to think about is in this idea of binariness is the notion that you only need one other person which I think is not the way that human beings work, right? Like, human beings don't need one other person. They don't live with just one other person. Like, it is perverse in romantic comedies or romantic dramas when the only person in your life is this person that you're dating and he, and, or you're married to or whatever. And if that's the way that people live, then it can be pretty sad. And there's, like, a, there's a sense of loss there. And that in order to sort of fully realize and, and do, like, what Matt's talking about with this whole idea of, you know, projecting into the body, uh, it's resistance to your ability, your desire to, to restrict it, the, the sort of the truths of human existence that are kind of dirty and messy requires you to be around people. And, and when you think about like the Bechdel test and, you know, women not talking to each other about things other than men, a lot of that comes from this binary idea of, of, of human beings, uh, you know, that we all need to be with one other person. This like nuclear family notion, this Victorian idea of like, that comes out of like courtly love, right. Of this like elevated bond between two people. And, and it seems to me interesting that this movie is, is so powerful. Like the, 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 Im- the images and the power that I get the sense from for this movie politically come from, don't come from Kristen Wiig being like Melanie Griffith in working girl. You know, they, they come from like it being a powerful movie with women in it um, who all get to be funny actresses and like funny performers and like funny characters right and all of them get to do it and it's and it's not like it's just a stunt it's not just a gag it's and it's not just like the individual characters making a political statement by virtue of doing a series of rebellious things this is not like a second wave feminist movie about somebody who finally gets to work in an office 
right? Like, but it feels feminist in the sense I'm getting from the public discourse and from the way that you're talking about it, because it's like a show of coexistence and of breaking out of this binary idea. Where and you're not even like sort of falling back into the herd either, right? This like the sort of the sewing circle, that diminished way of talking about way women socialize with each other. That's that's very reductive and not so good. It's definitely like a more of looking aspiring towards a more fully realized socialization among women. And I think that that if Right, because if you think, spe- of, that, I mean, together. think of the the difference between like forget uh, no, what am I thinking of? Um, saving Silverman, right? And mm. and bridesmaids, you know what I mean? The, yeah. The, from the perspective of the herd of uh, you know single gender friends, um, yeah. Marriage is seen as uh, uh, in the kind of the traditional Hollywood stereotype, right? Marriage is seen as kind of idealized for the the sewing circle, but um, but as kind of uh, denigrated for the stag party, and uh, you know it's a betra- mm-hmm. it's a betrayal of the stag party, whereas it it is a um, um, uh, uh, it's it's sort of the ideal and the kind of the telos of the the sewing circle. I, Thank I you. Just, I was waiting for you to use the word telos. And Thank you for <laughs> telos. And Continue. The, awesome. And the, you know, I mean, the idea as, as of, of marriage as a, as a teleological end. You know, one, one thing you're talking about. I was I was thinking about this the other, um, thinking about this the other day in a, in a completely other connection. And the connection is is not important. Um, but the one one thing that our film that filmed entertainment tends to do by, uh, you know, by way of, I don't know, compressing things or by way of kind of ironing out uh, a lot of the complexities of life um, is deny us the possibility that we have mixed feelings about a lot of things. Right. You, you know what I mean? And that, like, yeah. that, you know, that things are not, that, that things are both good and bad or that you can both, you can sort of both want, uh, you know, you can sort of both want to uh, uh, spend happily ever after and forever and ever with your, you know, one romantic partner and also with your group of, of same gendered or, you know, different gendered friends with a, you know, with a group of non-romantic partners or you can, you can want to be in a, in a dyad and you can want to be in a group and that like the, the tensions between these two things are, are actually interesting and would actually make for more um uh uh shall we say interestingly textured art you know what i mean than than the the kind of the teleological drive that yeah. it has to be exactly one way uh exactly yeah. one way or exactly the other and sort of by recovering you know by recovering for women uh and i mean i, I suppose it was never really lost in point of fact but but maybe in in hollywood films uh the idea that you know that the the dyad kind of exists side by side with the uh you know with the group um th- this movie might be doing something good for a, a social yeah. a social good for all of us and that i mean that's really what hollywood movies are for is to kind of do a social good for all of us <laughs> well you know the, the hangover is kind of like that too and you know the hangover I actually just saw last week on the plane uh the first one right obviously the first one the second one's coming next week yeah well because what the hangover isn't about is about like oh you're getting married that sucks let's all be dudes together because the guy who's getting married isn't in most of the movie, which is kind of a brilliant turn. Like it sets up the sort of contrast between the impending, you know, married life and the sort of past life with these friends, but it doesn't set it up as the sort of like, Oh, isn't it going to be terrible when we're all settled down and we won't be able to do this anymore. It just sort of like shows the coexistence. Like there's, there's one mention to it near the end where it's like, we'll take one look at the pictures and then we'll never speak of it again. But it's, that's definitely feels like an epilogue of the sort that seeks to like moralize on, 
on something that resisted that kind of moralization. Um, and, and I think it's really cool. I like I like movies like this. And yeah, I mean, I talked about Superbad, and Superbad is a little bit more pat about how it sort of shows that transition and the pain of loss that comes with those things. But maybe that's not the way that it needs to be. And, and maybe we, we can show Superbad, the... Superbad you know. is about a different thing. I mean, Superbad is not about... Uh, is not about like a, a, a same gender friendship being disrupted by romance. It's it's a book about the end of adolescence. You know. Well, you know, that's true. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's said, true. That's true. A book about the end of adolescence, and by yeah. you know by those two things, it, it, in a way, Pete. In a way, no. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I. I think to a certain extent, the, the objects of our adolescent feelings are more or less intercha- interchangeable. And the, um, mm. uh, the, the point is the feelings themselves. Um, that is to say, when, uh, <laughs> what am I saying in my terrible way? Uh, not, not that those things aren't important to our biography and to our own personal history and to you know, the, the person we eventually become. Um, but uh, the, the relationships that we enter into as adults are sort of non-developmental. That is to say, they're, they're goal is not to sort of move us to the next stage of life. Their goal is to sort of enrich life and to, uh, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, and so su- Superbad, I think, should be a, a special case of this kind of thing because, because what it does brilliantly, uh, I, you know, I think, is kind of depict that. Um, like, they're not that great of friends in, uh, or that they're mm. not that well suited to one another as friends. Right. Super right. Right. And, and yeah. like, you know what I mean? And they're, um, uh, and you, you have a feeling that like, if they met in college, they wouldn't be friends. Or if they met in their twenties mm. or thirties, those two personalities wouldn't be friends, but because they're, they're kind of bonded by shared outsiderness at high school, they, they are friends. And so the, the kind of the, the other person in that friend role is kind of arbitrary to, uh, you know mm. what I mean? In, in, in super bad. And also the objects of the, the romance, uh, you know, from, from both sides, both for the women and the men, uh, are arbitrary in super bad. Like those, those relationships are not going to survive going to college, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and and so that's uh, so Superbad is about is about a, a specific kind of loss that happens as a result of growing up, not as a result of of romance. So I, I'm sorry, I'm I'm shitting all over. Oh no, the point. this I, is all this is this is brilliant. This is really brilliant, and I want to bring this. Oh, thank you. Then in that case, I intended it. <laughs> and I want to bring this to talk more about women in comedy and women in performance. Let's bring this to one of mine, and I hope overthinking its most beloved film franchises, uh, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Oh, uh, Tree, have you seen? They're have you, pants, you read the book? And they travel. <laughs> you know what? I will say that this is this is uh, something that I haven't uh, done just out of fear. I think. Why? Uh, I, I, this, this, the fans this, will fit you too. They fit all women. That's because it's metaphysical. This, this, <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not here for the sappy. There's, there seems to be a lot of sappy, a lot of, a lot of. I don't know. Blake Lively's legs in those pants. Those aren't. Those aren't really my my things. But uh, but I mean, I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear your take on it. Maybe you guys can sell me on one and or two. Okay. Well, I'm not necessarily going to – I come here to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but what you were saying about the relationships in Superbad makes me think about the relationships in The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants and in a lot of movies like it because I feel like – now, and this is also maybe some of Tina Fey's book talking, right? And when we're talking about the different sort of 
I mean, it's really kind of a form of epic as we're seeing a new literature come <laughs> forward that's trying to justify a female ruling class, right? Because you're going to see, you're seeing the first generation of corporate executives and political leaders uh, who are women who are like legitimate authorities and have an old woman, and not an old woman's club, but like the old girls' club is is coming into play, right? And like you're starting to see like, and you know, and I don't mean and this in any way. The, demo- the demography of like you know more more women are getting college and advanced degrees uh, than men are, and and so. On. Oh yeah, and as a consequence of this, there's like a there's like a call for a cultural contextualizing of this to give it the sort of strength, resilience, and underpinning that that any sort of ascendant class would want. Right. And I don't and I, again, I'm not trying to be alarmist here. I mean, it's I think it's something that's actually happening that you're seeing, you know, women come into being in charge of things. And of course, they want to work with women. They want to hire women. And, and, and I think that this is good stuff. This is important. Um, it's part of the growing pains of these kinds of social changes. But the stuff in the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, think about Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Think about stuff like the Joy Luck Club and even think about sex in the city. This is a different paradigm than we see in, like, say, like, well, in Tina Fey's book or in 30 Rock or, or even in, like, Parks and Recreation, right? This idea that, like, women need to hold together to be strong together because, like, the world wants them to be weak, but no, they're resilient and they're strong. But the relationships in The Sister and the Traveling Pants are like the relationships you're talking about in Superbad. They're relationships that people came upon by chance that are about them moving forward to the next phase in their life. They're not relationships that people have maturely in life that sort of the the sort of purpose of adolescent development set aside are part of the life that they have and that like this is what life is right like like life is now and and you better get you best get on it you know get busy living and get busy dying uh so said red and all that stuff um so yeah so it's like they're, they're not the authentic friendships of a, of an adult and of an adult who would who would be beholden to themselves and to the people around them i guess but mostly like to themselves to make active choices about their own success and happiness and, and i think that there really is a literature of this that this sort of the yaya stuff where it's like you know and and i don't want to diminish the idea of people being friends with each other and caring about each other but but it doesn't express that same sort of individual realization and actualization and it almost seems to reinforce a narrative of incompleteness and also this idea that people ought to be friends with people with whom they are like totally and completely different um because it's part of like being a rich tapestry which just seems like kind of a forced way of talking well, about something he, that's often difficult for can, I, can i try to summarize your, your point here oh, please you're, do. you're saying you're saying that a movie like sisterhood of the traveling pants and or bridesmaids are you sort of putting those together no i'm yeah. i'm contrasting them but of course i'm okay. sorry so, so you're saying the sisterhood of the traveling pants is about it emphasizes friendship because uh, that sort of group actualization is like that. What's what they need to do, and that sort of at the expense of individual self-actualization. Well, it's not the expense of self-actualization for them because they're teenage girls, right? It's at the expense of individual self-actualization for us, who, as men in our early thirties and late twenties, probably shouldn't be watching this movie. But uh, <laughs> I am really concerned about this. <laughs> no, you never saw the story, which was me and John Levin. I was visiting John Levin. It was Sunday night, and we were like, "Oh man!" And he had to go to work the next day, so we couldn't go out. So we're hanging out in the old apartment, and we turn on the TV. We see Sister of the Traveling Pansas is on, and we're like, "Man, let's get hammered and watch this." <laughs> then we proceeded to not get hammered and watch the sister. <laughs> like that was really good. That once again, smash cut to Pete and John Levin holding each other on the couch. It's a lone tear trickles down. No, I'm not, I don't want to say it's a terrible movie, but what I am saying is that it doesn't. 
uh, fully realize this adult notion of your relationship with other people, right? And this sort and and and, uh, and which I'm talking about when I'm talking about like the sort of the binary other. Right, and 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 I'm talking about this this sort of women uh, presenting themselves culturally and kind of poetically, right, in, in the culture as, as sort of um, actualized enough to be to be funny, to to identify truths, to like to be the stars, to be the real stars, to be really in charge, to not need men uh, in their stories, right? Um, and again, this is also because of this, not because of any sort of like good or bad thing that women in the world have done, like women qua women. We're talking about like the fictionalization of women and the construction of the fictional woman, right? Um, because, of course, all of us are, you know, cells and blood and, and gender ain't nothing but a word and all the other stuff. So, like, um, uh, so, so, yeah, so, yeah, so, uh, again, uh, from there, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, um, that's, that sisterhood gives up individuality. The people in sisterhood aren't really looking for the kind of individuality that Kristen's Wig character sounds like she's looking for in Bridesmaids. Right, they're not really at that point. Like they're at a point where they are still coming to terms with the world, and they're still kind of confronting their own bodies for the first time. They're not like fully knowledgeable about what their bodies do. They're not at the point where they're this laughing. About this is really, really freaking me out. Sorry. <laughs> What's freaking you out? What was puberty like for you? I'm scared. What was puberty like for me? I mean, we were beaten by leather straps by the older Boy Scouts. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> one of these days. One of these Change days. Like. One of these days, I really want to write about what male puberty is like because it is ridiculous and people have no idea. Are you like, jealous like, that you didn't have a Beverly Cleary for your generation or a Judy Bloom? When, when I had those? a Beverly for my generation. Her name was Beverly Cleary. <laughs> well, you know, Judy Bloom to really talk about all the weird things that you need to talk about. As a, as a dude? Lady times. Yeah, I mean, all the, all the, I mean, I found like the stories from adolescent men are either sports stories, science fiction stories, or dog stories. I mean, those are really the only, but those are the your own adventure. Well, I suppose. But the but two-year-old adventure stories are typically about sports, science are. fiction, say and the, dogs. Say the, Pete, say and the or categories dogs. again. Sports stories, dog stories, sports and what? Sports stories, science fiction stories, and dog stories. What about – Or a look- combination of two or yeah, three I mean, like, I guess adventure stories fall under the realm of, of – uh, Science fiction stories. I would, I would, or sports I guess stories. So. Actually, I'm thinking of, and I'm thinking here of like some, you know, dude centered young adult fiction I read uh, as a young dude, uh, like um, Hatchet. Did you ever read Hatchet? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like and, survival. Uh, the other one is yeah, My yeah. Side of the Mountain. I loved my side of the mountain. Yeah, both, both, oh, I, that was my side of the mountain. You can't claim that side of the mountain. Get off my books, side of the mountain. I guess both of those books are. Um, they're a combination, I guess, of science fiction and uh, and sports stories. The sports having to do with kind of uh, the the physical aspects of like survival, um, and the the science fiction having to do with the I guess sort of the intellectual aspects of survival. Yeah, but at the same time, as much as I loved My Side of the Mountain, and much as I loved like those aren't books about socialization. Like they're so solitary. So many books about male puberty are so solitary, especially about like young male teenagers. Like that, there are totally Totally by themselves, right? And and I think the reason for that is that what men actually do to each other is kind of really horrifying. He gets one. Um, he gets one. La- he gets a lady friend in uh, my side. Of- the flies. Well, yeah, he has a bird. And, you, know, you mean like not a woman, not a bird? That's yeah, isn't, there, isn't there a girl who starts coming up and, and hanging out with him, and who's his like? I uh, think so, but yeah, I, I think she's there. But she she's from the town, right? And she comes up to the mountain and says hello every once in a while. She's part of the story, I suppose. It seemed right. a little forced to me at the <laughs> so, time. But Priya, I don't know if you heard this, right, but Priya just called out the uh, the defining piece of uh, fiction for adolescent boys, which is Lord of the Flies, right? Yeah, adolescent yeah, boys I've, doing terrible things to each other. <laughs> 
Have you guys ever read The Chocolate War? It's all about like boys, boys in private school like kicking the shit out of each other. Isn't like a separate, a separate piece like that too? Mm. Also, uh, all quiet on the Western Front. That's why dating is so hard, guys. So Europe hard. Europe for like to everybody. What? Oh, yeah, dating is really tough because we're all subjected to all sorts of ridiculous. I <laughs> <laughs> definitely definitely so yeah so so i think i mean i don't know i i but i think like uh the thing the thing that always amused me about it is like when you see south park and you see the little boys cursing it's like oh my god little boys are cursing like little boys much younger than that say much worse things um and like in real life all the time every day like for hours and hours and and of course people aren't really prepared to talk about it and so um when we're talking about things like we're, we're, you know, there's a different kind of existence. The point is that there's a different kind of existence when you're growing up and you're tackling the challenges of growing up. And, and like, you know, this manifests in all sorts of ways. And, and then when you're an actually an adult, you have to kind of confront problems with a little bit of a different attitude. And I think it's important for us to – I really feel like we need to have some sort of place in our lives where we are untaught. Like we're like, okay, you've made it to adulthood. Now let's systematically unteach you a whole bunch of things we taught you for your own good, like between the ages of eight and twelve, right? And it's like, you know, it's it's like it's okay to drink, right? <laughs> like it's you know, it's in fact do so. Like you know, this is how you should go about uh, like drinking wine, you know, like it's. But the way it is, we people like learn all this stuff just <laughs> out of a, out of a box. Exactly <laughs> out of a box, you know. And it's like it's you know, it's it's perfectly fine to. Um, to curse and to and you know this is what happens if you actually need to get to a fight in real life as opposed to on the playground right and like stuff like that it's just and also sex all the whole thing just unteach everything and reteach it again when you're an adult and you don't have to worry about getting you know uh, getting things done inappropriately yes. happening re-education camps there should be camps for this yes there should totally be like club med but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but I think I think that that's kind of but I think that when I was reaching back to the sister of the traveling pants, I was saying that in the absence of a mature literature for the adult woman who as a fully realized person, um, you instead see a literature where all groups of women are presented as groups of adolescent women. Right. So like and I would say that Sex in the City is a lot like this a lot of the time. And and the big big one, you know, Joy Luck Club is huge on this, where it's like like the the you have to be really close to and friends with all these people around you in a way that really diminishes your own individuality and turns it into the caricature of what it's like to be a person. Because you're like the one you're like of a particular quality in your group. And the sort of strength of the group as such is that your own problems seem somewhat diminished and you kind of draw strength from that. But that's that's not the way that adults are supposed to live you know it's 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 destructive it's 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 the way that you live when you you have no relationship formal relationship with the world where you can't stand on your own two feet out there in the wind by yourself because the social forces will bowl you over you need to huddle with the women because you don't allow to own property right like stuff like that um and 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 so i want i'm i want to see less of that kind of movie and i want to see more kinds of movies like bridesmaids where you have a group of people a group of women in an ensemble who are fully realized characters and then you have the characters who can step out of the ensemble and be on their own right and they're not just like blake lively wearing pants that also fit on a poriqua um so (laughs) yes on one hand they can but let me sort of play devil's advocate a little bit here they can't stand on their own two feet here but on, on another level so critics who uh, who point to bridesmaids and Thirty Rock and saying like, well, these are being held up as examples of you know women having their own their time in comedy, but really they're not. And, that, and the fact that these some ways you could argue that the characters can't really stand on their own two feet. Um, you haven't seen Bridesmaids, but basically one of the things that happens in Bridesmaids is that you know her life goes to crap in so many different ways, and she winds yeah. up moving back in with her mom. Uh, in Thirty Rock, uh, Thirty Rock's Tina Fey. Um, 
yes, she is quote unquote the boss, but she also is neurotic and has to go running to Jack Donaghy to help, you know, to get help with her problems. Um, so there is, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying, Pete, but there is another side of this coin here as well, which I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if, like what, what your take is on that. I fair enough. Well, I would say that when I say that somebody wants to stand on their own two feet, I'm referring less to independence in a material sense or independence in like the sense of I can get by on my own because I'm Mary Tyler Moore in the big city. I'm, I'm talking more about sort of actualizing yourself by actively participating in the kind of stewardship of your own life and in the sense of like living in your own life and, and, and being and being that person that is in your own life that and being capable of being alone and still being you. Right. right. You know, and, and I think that you can have a shitty situation. I keep saying that word and I'm going to get us all these chili peppers on our Eudora if I keep doing <laughs> um, I was warned not to do this before I got here and I'm feeling kind yeah. of left out. I'm sorry. I shouldn't. I, it, we <laughs> should be curse. That's not fair. That's fair. That's <laughs> I'm not feeling fair. really repressed here. But I, th- but I think the point that you're making actually I think is captured in Bridesmaids because I think you watch. So, you know, it's very clear to Kristen Wiig at a certain point when, when what someone says to her, like, you're, you put yourself in the situation. The only way that you're going to get yourself out of the situation is pulling yourself, like, off the ground and, like, taking charge of your life. As opposed to a dude coming along and picking her up right, off the right. ground. Right, right, That's right. Which one, is- one of the many pieces of it, which actually happens with the support of her friends. Like, otherwise, it, what she wouldn't really, I mean, it's, it's like a little bit of both. She has to take on part of it on her own, and the rest of it kind of happens yeah. in story and laughing and crying and yay. And Wilson yes. Phillips. And Wilson <laughs> Phillips. And Wilson Phillips. Wait, Wilson Phillips is actually in this movie? Like the, oh, the, the band? Yeah. Wilson yes. Phillips? Can I just yeah. say China Phillips looks great? She looks fantastic. Yeah, yes. well, not to spoil too much. Not to spoil. I, I, she I, always. Priya, I think you just. I think oh, you just I just spoiled. It it's okay. I mean, if you, you I, IMDb would have done it before me anyway, so it's okay. I mean, the worst offender in this kind of movie, and the most disappointing is the next Karate Kid, right? Where like <laughs> the actual climactic fight involves like the dude, like the boyfriend, like fighting another guy. <laughs> it's just like the most disappointing thing in, in ever. But uh, but yeah, no, and I think I think that it needs to be more than just like I don't need a man to come here and take care of me. Like you need to be at the point where that's not even. An option, right? Like where that just feels ridiculous because um, you know you you have certain quintessential problems as a human being, and they don't go away because you're with somebody else, right? Right? And whether you're a man or a woman, and I think that maturely realized characters in drama and comedy recognize that. So, I mean, yeah. So. so Tina Fey isn't with Jack Donaghy in a romantic sense, but yeah. Tina Fey often does. Sorry, Liz Lemon, right? Liz Lemon does often rely on Jack Donaghy to solve a lot of her problems. Or is that too simple of a reading? Like, how do we uh, how do we justify sort of the Thirty Rock uh, Liz Lemon character? Well, I would say that the important thing is not the way that Liz Lemon turns to Jack Donaghy for help in in the sense that she can't do things by herself, but it's the sense of how like uh, Liz Lemon and Jack Donaghy are very different characters. Right, they're they're very different, and 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 in Tina Fey's book, she talks about um, the Jack Donaghy character, the Liz Lemon character, the Tracy Morgan character, and, and how the idea, the whole idea behind the Thirty Rock show, like the quintessential basic idea behind the Thirty Rock show, is that those three characters, all if you present them with any problem, will come up with like totally different attitudes about the problem and we'll have a whole series of different sorts of relationships and alliances that'll show up that'll be surprising right like on different issues um you know there'll be a lot of times when tracy and liz agree on something and and jack donaghy doesn't or there'll be times where jack donaghy and tracy bond over something and liz is left out or there's times where liz and and jack donaghy are dealing with an issue and tracy is like off the side right like there's a lot of two-in-one situations so in the sense that Liz Lemon's character kind of exists on her own two feet, 
uh, is not that she needs Jack Donaghy's help, although I guess sometimes that does sort of dwell in, in a kind of a bad place. But it's more like, does she continue to, to exist in that situation as herself, right? Like, does she need Jack Donaghy's presence in order to confront the problem? Or does he need, she need his, like, resources, right? Because if she just needs to get something from him, then, like, that could be a situation where she has power, too, right? Like, like if, if, if they, you need something from somebody, whether that makes you high status or low status, like, you have an interaction with that person, right? It's not that she sort of needs him to be there because she can't handle being around. Like, she can't handle her life, so she needs him to be there for her. I mean, it's more like she needs money or she needs support in the company or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, I'm trying to think of a good ex- counterexample of somebody who really needs somebody else in, in fiction and can't really handle life without them. And, and so, um, and there's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of examples. I'm, I'm gravitating towards sex in the city where like, you know, Carrie, Carrie and Big's relationship is, is sort of like much worse, uh, from a sort of self-actualization standpoint than Liz Lemon and Jack Donaghy's relationship, because there's this sense that Carrie needs Big, but it's never really expressed why. Like, there's no reason why she needs him, so it's not instrumental. Like, she doesn't need him in order for some sort of negotiation. She doesn't need him to get anything or do anything. She just needs him because she's incapable of being herself by herself. And so she keeps going, cycling through all these men to try to sort of, like, complete the life that she wants to have. Um, and and it's not really about sex. Like, it's not really about Carrie and Enjoying having sexual intercourse with people or about like the sort of intimacy that comes from spoiler that. alert pete yeah <laughs> sex in the city is not about sex no sex in the city isn't about sex 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 is sex in the city is about like mating and like pairing um you it's, know it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's about being okay having sex in the city well that's true sex in the city is is named as such because it like doesn't like take out that issue and yeah. like does exactly they, they do it in every episode but there's other that's things true. that happen shocker I know exactly, exactly. But I would say that like the needing that Carrie. So I would say that Carrie in Sex and City not a very funny character. Like I'm not. I don't think she's very funny. And she's and if I were the sex is what I would call her. sad sack. Yeah, exactly. And and if I were one of the men who says that women can't be funny, I would point to Carrie Bradshaw as an example of a comic lead who is a woman who is not a funny character. And I think the reason that she's not a funny character is that she there's a layer between her and the sort of essential truth of being who she is because she's written as like an, as a binary other who like requires somebody else to do anything. Um, and and it's like it's it's she doesn't we don't get that sense of kind of honestly confronting the reality of her existence, like the reality of her body, as, as Matt put it, or like her recognizing unexpected things, or like her, what is it like for her to go about her day? Like these things are diminished because she is not comfortable being herself. Or not even comfortable, but just like extant, right? Um, I mean, her, her whole career is based on the fact that she writes about men. Well, yeah, exactly. She can't do anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, I, I would definitely cite her. And, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why people love Samantha so much, because Samantha doesn't need men for reasons other than intercourse. Um, and she enjoys their company. I mean, she also hates them. But Samantha is, is the funniest of the characters on Sex and the City um, and also the best. Um, I, although I like Miranda a lot as a character. She's pretty funny, especially when she's being curmudgeon When she's like, when, when Miranda is angsty about something that like, you know that she could take care of if she wanted to, but she still feels not so good about it. That's when she's funny. But um, my, my only flip side to that is that they also make her the ugliest character, especially in the first couple of seasons where she literally looks like howdy doody. Yeah. Oh, totally. Oh, cause, cause that, I mean, not- yeah, that's what I find totally upsetting. Like why she can't be totally gorgeous and totally ballsy at the same time. 
Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. I mean, it's because they they need her to be a they need her to be a type because the people aren't comfortable with her being a realized character. But the actress is a step ahead of them in those situations and does a better job of it. Right. Can I just point out the subconscious gender politics going on there when Priya refers to someone as being ballsy? <laughs> <laughs> just yes, saying. Yes. Just saying. <laughs> Definitely. We need to have some new words for that. We need to have some new cool words for being courageous and gutsy. And gutsy doesn't really work either because, I don't know, moxie doesn't really work either because... You know, we have, speaking of 30 Rock, we really have Alec Baldwin to blame slash think for that from Glenn mm-hmm. Gary, Glenn Ross. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, he's the whole reason the show. No anyway. ladies in that movie. I don't, I don't know if I have time for that. Well, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross is, yeah, is, is, a, is about men in the absence of women, right? Like, that's kind of, a, it's not like the kind of thing where it's like, oh, I didn't put women in that movie. It, I, David Mamet didn't write any women into that play because women can't be in plays. No, he, he it's a movie about a bunch of dudes. No, but it's, uh, I mean, or, David Mamet is, a, is an example that, that people give a lot about, like, uh, the woman is a, a disruption of the male system. And, I, you know, Oleana, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, sexual perversity in Chicago. The po- I mean, the point of sexual perversity in Chicago is, is in that first scene when the two guys are sitting in the bar and one is telling, uh, you know, the other one some totally, totally BS story about a sexual conquest that never happened. And, uh, but it's, it's fantastic. It's embellished. It's, I mean, it's a glorious story. And then the actual... The actual relationship happens, and it's it's banal, and it's kind of gross, and um, you know, and and how it's so much better to be, uh, it's so much better to be alone with your dude friend at a bar, uh, bsing about women, than it is to actually have a, uh, uh, than it is to actually have a, a a partner. I mean, that's sexual perversity in Chicago. That you know, that's Oleana. That's. Um, that speed the plow, right? Like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> speed the plow, especially um, because you know Raúl Esparza and Jeremy Piven want to be together, and Elizabeth Moss just gets in the way. Goddamn <laughs> Zoe Bartlett from The West Wing. <laughs> so yeah, but I mean, I say I don't think Glenn Gary Glenn Ross would be better if there were more women in it, because um, I think it would kind of defeat the, purpose, the purpose of the whole yeah. thing. <laughs> but may, but it's more like it shouldn't be the dominant narrative of our civilization. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like I don't know. I haven't I haven't seen Speed the Plow, though I probably should have because I've had ample opportunity. It seems like that thing got produced much more than it needed to be, especially in the in the nineties. I, I hate on. to break it to you, Pete, but I think uh, uh, Jack, not Jack Donaghy, um, <laughs> Alec Baldwin's axiom: always be closing, is in some ways the uh, definitive narrative for our generation. <laughs> Well, totally. I think it is. I, I mean, I think that that David Mamet is a pretty good dramatist, right? I mean, well, it's an understatement. He's very good. He's an excellent dramatist, and I think he tells compelling stories about frustration and about kind of like you know um, the the pressures that we all feel to live in our modern social roles. Uh, and he's created this idea that's very compelling. I'd love to see an actual legitimate, you know, non you know, welfare case, female David Mamet, where we're not just doing a David Mamet play with a woman because we're conscious of how sexist we are when we do David Mamet with men. Like, I'd like to see some sort of, like, realization on that level. I'd like to see the narrative, because it's tough. It would be tough to change the narrative, because there's just so much embedded symbolism in all of this stuff, and there's and there's just so much that's part of the construction of how these genders work together and people's expectations, and, like, you know, uh, I mean, David Mamet, right, I wrote in his wonderful, I love his letter to the writers of the unit, where he tries to explain to them how to write those scripts because they don't know how because uh, the unit is terrible and the executives keep making producers and executives keep making having to make terrible changes. The unit, the unit had a good year. What the unit had, had a one, good year, but and yeah. then it got terrible. Yeah, it's yeah. 
And he was, and basically, in, in during the time when the unit was getting terrible, David Mamet wrote a letter to the writing team that was basically like a dramatic scene needs to be about somebody wanting something and then not getting it, right? And then, and that's what dramatic scenes are about. And it's all well and good to have a scene where we say we need to kill the prime minister or all Europe will be engulfed in flames. Like you can just say that, but it's not interesting, and nobody's going to want to keep watching that after a while, unless it's twenty four. You just do. It. Nonstop, <laughs> uh, and the years like fill this every silence with noise. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, that, that, and torture. <laughs> right, exactly. We don't have time for dramatic development. Um, yeah. The uh, yeah. Then it's about brutalizing the audience. You know what I mean? It's about it's about sort yeah. of. Uh, uh, it's just like strobe light in your face. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Which is awesome when you're high. Or <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Especially when you're an epileptic. I feel like we're offending a lot of people. It's cool. That's what we do. <laughs> well, we we focus on people with slight cognitive functional disorders. Epilepsy, <laughs> <laughs> autism, it's dyslexia. A, a dyslexia is a big one. We talked about dyslexia a lot. I love all these people, and I hope a lot of them listen to the podcast. And you can write your own definitive narrative about being dyslexic <laughs> so that we can all, like, always be in <laughs> closing, be always. No, wait. <laughs> wow are you are you offended by what you've heard tonight if so you can email us at podcast at overthinking.com or leave an outraged voicemail at 203-285-6401 i think it's impossible to uh improve on that so i'll just say visit us this week on www.overthinkingit.com the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably doesn't deserve to hold on for one more day. Hey, second prize is a set of steak knives. First prize is you're fired. Third prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. <laughs>